0: world-class media. This is world-class. I'm your host, Travis Chappell. Here on world-class, we combine value, entertainment, and behind the scenes insights to bring you the most comprehensive view of what it takes to become world-class in what you do. Listen in every week as I have conversations with top business leaders, journalists, hostage negotiators, authors, comedians, producers, you name it. If they're the best at what they do, i'll have a chat with them i believe that the best way to become world class is to learn from those who already are and that's exactly what we do here on the show you'll learn the skills that you need to master the mindset that you need to adopt the work you need to put in all from people who have walked the road before you so get ready to learn be motivated and most importantly have a good time because you're listening to world class hey what's going on everybody welcome back to world class Okay, so this is obviously a pretty crazy time uh, to be living in. It's very unique, very interesting, uh, unprecedented even, and uh, so this is going to be a little bit of an adjustment for us here on World Class. We obviously launched a show that's a YouTube show primarily, which means that all of our content, all of our interviews were supposed to be in person, live, and so Obviously we're having to adjust a little a little bit from what we were originally planning to do and we picked a pretty bad time to launch uh in person type of a YouTube show like this. So needless to say, all of our interviews have been pushed or postponed or canceled or rescheduled in some regard. And so instead of just skipping the next few months of content, what we decided to do is kind of head back into the archives of build your network, which is my, which is my, uh, my other show that I have. And what we're doing is we're selecting some of the best interviews that we've done on that we've done on there and taking some of those world-class and individuals and entrepreneurs that I chatted with over on build your network. And then we're featuring some of those interviews here on world-class so that we can continue to release content that helps everybody uh, that subscribes to the channel. So on that note, if you are watching this right now on YouTube, please be sure to hit that subscribe button, hit that bell notification icon so that you're notified every time we release a new video, it'd mean the world to us. And then if you're listening to this on the podcast uh, app in Apple or in whatever podcasting app that you're listening in, make sure to head over, um, subscribe there and leave a rating and review helps us uh, to be able to get the show out to more people and gives us feedback on what maybe we can improve or do better with. So please take a second and go do that really quickly before we get into into today's show. So we are, like I said, going to be launching this series of basically uh, archived Build Your Network interviews and uh, going to be releasing them here on World Class. So uh, today we are sitting down with none other than Tom Bilyeu himself, and this is one of my favorite conversations and one of the best ones that we've ever been able to put together. And we've gotten a lot of great feedback on it from Build Your Network work and so we can't can't wait to release it here on World Class. So without any further ado at all, please enjoy this conversation that I had with Tom Bilyeu. Tom Bilyeu, welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Of course, of course. So I really want to get into a lot of stuff with you. Usually when I prep for one of these interviews, there's like a certain direction. I know I'm taking the conversation, but every once in a while with people like you, it's so difficult because... There's so many areas that we could really dive into that you have a m- just massive amount of knowledge around. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to keep it pretty succinct here and go after something I really want to get. So, um, But first, for like the three people out there who might not know who you are, let's go back and put a little context here. Tell me what it was like for childhood Tom like tell me tell me what it was like like growing up I was going way back I didn't expect to
1: go back that far um so I grew up in Tacoma Washington and my parents taught me to be a good employee to keep my head down do as little work as possible middle class middle class yeah lower middle class maybe um And that was really how I grew up was with that mentality and, um, you know, do what you're told, be on time, that kind of stuff. And I had no entrepreneurial instincts or anything like that, but in my family always had to have a job. So from the time I was 12, I worked summers and, uh, I have to laugh because of course child labor laws, mom (laughs) and dad. Um, but I... Like for instance, my first job I got in a door factory because I really wanted a Nintendo, and I thought for sure my parents would buy me one, but they absolutely refused. And they said, "If you want one, you have to buy it yourself." So yeah. that was why I took the job in the door factory, making, if I remember right, two dollars and ten cents an hour. Nice. Which is why they were willing to hire a twelve-year-old. As a, a teenager, a
0: twelve-year-old. Yeah. yeah there you go. So.
1: <laughs> Um, that was gnarly, and I really tried to get out of work there as much as humanly possible. And I quit as soon as I could afford my Nintendo and a couple games. Um, so <laughs> gotta yeah. have a couple
0: games, maybe an extra controller or two. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So um, definitely not setting me up. You know, it's it's funny. It is a bit of wax on, wax off of my dad saying this is going to build character. You know, you need to do these things, and it really did end up working. Uh, there's a, a a funny punchline to all this that I'll I'll get to in the end, but. Yeah. So that was it. I always had to have a summer job. Um, Almost always menial labor because I was too lazy to go and apply for a job or put together a resume. So it was always a job where my dad worked. So my dad worked for a paint company. So I was in a paint warehouse, I made paint for a while, Uh, I worked in a paint store. So it was uh, not things that were intellectually thrilling. Um, but it was good my dad always said look this is going to teach you about what you don't want and so he really wanted me to go to school and so doing that enough I thought yeah I really do want to go to school but then flash forward I'm at Quest and we had gotten our first facility and the truck this big um, truck shows up with a bunch of equipment like massive equipment Mm -hmm. and we're like oh my god we don't have a forklift and (laughs) we're like well maybe we could borrow a forklift from the neighbor and we're like but nobody knows how to drive a forklift and I was like guys, I actually know how to drive a forklift. I've been certified. <laughs> yes. And they're like, how on earth have you been certified in, in driving forklift? And I said, I used to work in a paint factory. And so I went, got the forklift, took it off. And we actually had me on camera saying, dad, wax on, wax off. <laughs> so yeah, it was pretty funny.
0: That's hilarious. So I think the important thing about the working from a young age is like the importance of work ethic, all that good stuff as well, but also the achievement of a goal. Right. To start building that confidence at a young age of of like, no, we're not going to buy you a Nintendo. But yes, it's still possible to achieve that and actually receive a Nintendo. You just have to put in the work to get the result. I think that um, and my parents, it was always the same thing. We had two acres and it was always full of weeds. So if I wanted something extra, it was like there's weeds to be pulled. So go out and weed. And I was out hoeing weeds in the summer and, you know, trying to make a little bit extra, extra mm. cash to go to Six Flags with my friends or something like that. But I think it was, it, was the, it was the getting in the habit of having a goal and then not just saying, well, my parents won't buy it for me, so now it's out of reach, but saying, my parents won't buy it for me, how do I get it? Mm-hmm. And then actually putting in the work to getting there. Um, so, so coming out of that kind of middle-class mindset, you said that school was basically the option Right. There was no other option for you. Was that kind of how it was in yeah, your Yeah, in your my eyes? family,
1: it was like, you're going to school. Yeah. It never even crossed my mind that I could There was another college. option. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it yeah. was just like, you're going to school, you're going to school. What are you going to study? Where yeah. are you going? So why um, film? Film at, at 12 years old. This is like really fascinating stories. And I think Malcolm Gladwell has written about this. Um, Bill Gates being arguably the most famous example of how your future can really be dictated by what you happen to have early access to. So... Yeah. He had early access to a mainframe where he could go and program. So he just, in high school. So he had so much knowledge about computers way before most people. Hmm. And so I had gotten, my dad's company had a camcorder at the office. But it was so weird and so new hmm. that nobody ever took it home. But my dad brought it home. And so I started playing with it because man, it seemed cool and I loved movies. And my dad knew that I loved movies. Which ties into my dad really liked cars. I hate Cars, like I have zero interest. And my dad's like a grease monkey, likes yeah. to like fiddle with cars. I don't even like my hands being dirty. Like it just drives me nuts. Yeah. So we didn't align on that. And of course, I wanted you know my dad's attention, and so we could bond over action films. So that was like a big thing. So Seagal and um, Jean Claude Van Damme, and like just a, a whole slew of the you know Schwarzenegger, all those guys, and. So that got me really keen in watching movies. He brings this thing home, it gets me interested in making movies. And originally I wanted to be in front of the camera. And then I started being the one that would move the camera because I just had a sense of where to put it to make something funny or whatever. And my dad, (coughs) excuse me, my dad goes, as an offhand comment, I think you're actually better, even better behind the camera than you are in front of the camera. And thinking back now, he may have been saying, look, you're so shit in front of the camera. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, but trying to just, encourage just me to... Just it a different way. Exactly. Yeah. But I took it to be like, I had some special talent. Mm-hmm. So then I started just focusing behind the camera and really fell in love with it. Yeah. And really started pushing it and fell in love with storytelling and began to realize that where you put a camera or how somebody acts, like you can take people on this emotional journey. And so I started looking at film very differently and... Yeah, just really, really got into that. And then when I went to film school, um, because I had been playing with the camera, I knew a little bit more maybe than some of the other students. Just kind of a head start. Exactly, and Mm -hmm. so I confused that with being naturally talented. Mm -hmm. And so when everyone caught up and then surpassed me, it was heartbreaking because I still believed that it was now just a reflection of the fact that I didn't have natural talent Mm -hmm. and I had been confused up until that moment.
0: And that's your only context of the world at that point, right? Like, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm dedicating my life to. I'm really talented at this. And then you figure out that, oh, like, maybe not. <laughs> what do you do at that point? So what did you do at that? Like, So I know that, I know that. and for, for anybody listening to this right now, you can get really into depth in Tom's story and a lot of the other content that he puts out there. Um, but uh, if... Uh, just to kind of uh, give a synopsis of your experience in, in film school here. So you go there, it's really difficult to get into USC film, film school, even harder, more difficult than like Harvard Law and different things like that, just statistically, right. right? So you you get in and then you work, 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 work and you get picked to do this senior thesis film thing, right? And then it just totally goes to crap, right? And it's just like this big ego hit. And then not only ego hit, but like I said, you you're dedicating the last like, you know, eight, ten years of your life to this practice, and then finally realizing that like, man, maybe maybe that's not what I'm supposed to do what did what did you do at that point to then end up working at a software company writing copy
1: the The weird thing about being twenty two is you feel at 22 the way you feel at 42, which is I'm as old as I'm ever going to be. My whole life has led me to this moment. This is the sum total of my life. You don't feel like, when I think of a 22-year-old now, I think they're a kid. Like, oh my God, your brain hasn't even finished developing yet. So, but you don't feel like that when you're in it. So it felt like my entire life was geared towards filmmaking. I believe at that time that you're either good at something or you're not. That, you know, I thought of, filmmaking the way most people think of singing you either have it or you don't it's mm-hmm. not something you really teach like sure you could help somebody with the technicalities mm-hmm. and stuff like that but you either can sing or right. you can't <laughs> and so you can get like a little bit better right yeah and i thought i went into film school thinking i'm really good at this mm-hmm. this is like what i am meant to do and then my senior thesis shows me the truth which is that i had no talent And so that was very hard to swallow. At first, it was uh, an absolute slide towards depression. I didn't know where I was going to go with my life. Everything that was so clear, now I felt hopelessly lost. When you're in film school, especially USC, you feel connected to the film world. I remember standing one time, maybe even closer than you and I are, to George Lucas Mm. and for like 30 minutes. And I just thought, yeah, like, you're here. You, you, it just feels like, even though you don't quite know how it's going to happen, you feel like it's going to happen. Right, right. I'm proximity, I've got the talent. And then I graduate, I have no more proximity, and I went out on a note where I'm like, I have no talent. So, hmm. edging towards depression, I'm dirt poor at the time. Move like, back into your parents' place? No, 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 no. I, I stayed here in L.A., okay. and I'm living in an apartment complex. I can't really afford furniture, um, and... I mean, to really drag this out. I was living with another guy. He's like, can my girlfriend come and stay with us for a week? That turned into two years. And then finally I moved out because you're getting outvoted. (laughs) And so you're just like, this is a nightmare. So I find myself in this really dingy part of town living by myself for the first time, can't afford furniture, and I would just come home from work and lay face down on the floor. And it was a period in my life I call, I was the king of remedial jobs. Mm -hmm. And I would intentionally seek out jobs where I knew I'd be smarter than the person interviewing because my self-esteem was so fragile, I needed to, be pumped up where the person interviewing would be like, why are, like, you're too smart for this. What are you doing here? Mm -hmm. And I lived for that moment. So I had, like, a string of really dumb jobs, including selling video games retail. So I was just the guy behind the counter. I had a degree in filmmaking, but I'm the guy behind the counter when you come to buy used video games, Yeah, literally. (laughs) And that was my existence, really, really dark time in my life. And at this point, I began to realize... This doesn't end anywhere good. Right. And in in um, college, I'd really become a voracious reader, and so I start reading about the brain. Okay. And as I'm reading about it, it was right. This is the late 90s. There's this hotly debated issue about brain plasticity. And now people just, yeah, yeah, the brain's plastic. You can create new neurons till the day you die. You can learn new stuff. All that. But back then, some people were saying it was real. Other people were saying that it was totally fake it's and, just and a theory at that yep, point. Like... That by the time you're like 12, you're like pruning neur- neurons, and you know, you're never going to become great. At something unless you showed a natural predilection for it. Hmm. So I'm like, I choose to believe that the people that say that you can learn new things are right, even though nobody's sure. Because if they're right, then I have hope for my future. And if they're wrong, I, I literally don't know what to do with my life. Yeah. And that was like too scary to face. So I found my way into personal development out of desperation. I didn't want to become depressed. And so
0: I start getting into like R- I'm sorry to interrupt that, uh, but I, I really want to touch on this because it's, I find that it's something that, that gets brought up a lot in all these interviews, is that there was, there was a really big low point that brought on this necessity to jump into personal development and make yourself better and like face your demons. Do you think that the enemy of rising to your potential is then mediocrity? Because I feel like if you are not in that point, I I don't see as many people making the decision when things are just kind of comfortable to jump into personal development and like really reach their goals.
1: Yeah, I think that mediocrity is the thing people have to fear, not failure. And most people spend their time being afraid of failure, but failure is the most information-rich data stream you will ever encounter. Like in the failure, if you're willing to look at it, you're gonna be like, oh, I see what we did wrong, I see how things you know came undone, I can learn from that and I can do better next time. But when it is that you just aren't doing anything, then The way that days blend into months, blend into years, like there's just this numbness to things Mm. and people get caught in that. And all of a sudden it's 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 and then they're just like, there's nothing I can do, it's already passed, it's who I am, and that scares the life out of me. Yeah, yeah, the regret. Right. I don't even think about it as regret. I just think about it as like doing cool shit and pushing yourself allows you to feel something neurochemically that's awesome. And you just missed out on a lot of years of that because you got in that numbness of the routine. Hmm. And I imagine most of those people will have regret on their deathbeds, but man, it's the day-to-day that scares me. It's like the day-to-day, just the missed opportunity of you could have felt rad about yourself and yet you're stewing in this like, The thing that really worries me, if it were just that people, everything is sort of okay, I could actually like, whatever, that's not a big deal. Maybe you just wanted a stress-free life. It's that people's tolerance for not okay is pretty horrendous. (laughs) And the depths to which some people will go before they force themselves to make a change and start doing hard things is pretty scary. And so when I think about doing the hard things, which most people aren't prepared to do, it's like, you've really got to train yourself to do that, to, to break out of this stuff even though one day they'll look back on it and say, that's actually pretty easy, um, it feels
0: hard because you have to face your inadequacies. Got it, got it. So going back to the story, you start reading a bunch of books about the brain and find out that humans are the ultimate adaptation machine, like something that you always say. So then what was the next step from there, jumping into this this, uh, career at this software company?
1: Well, that was me really wanting to control the art so by that point i um, i'm reading about brain plasticity i've chosen to believe that it's real i start teaching and as i'm teaching film i realize i can help them make their films better now i'm having to work my ass off and if you've ever taught like teaching is crazy i don't understand how it's not one of the highest paid professions the amount of work you have to do outside of the class is crazy right so I was teaching during the day and then basically researching and trying to put lesson plans and not wanting to embarrass myself the next day because I was like, I'm the guy that failed at my senior thesis. So it's not like I have this figured out. So at night I'm like going crazy and I'm really starting to understand what my teachers were trying to teach me. I was starting to understand where I went wrong with my film. Like it was all starting to come together. And then I would tell them what I'm learning and their films would get better. And Mm. so I'm like, okay, hold on. If I can help them make right. their films better, I could help me make my films better. So that, like, is hanging above my head in a thought bubble. And these two successful entrepreneurs come across my path. And they say, look, man, you're coming to the world with your hand out. If you want to control the art, you're going to have to control the resources. Mm. So come with us and get rich. And I thought, that sounds amazing. How did you meet them? So they saw me giving a talk um, about film and media and how it can influence people so obviously made enough impression on them for them to come to you and say hey come work with us correct so they were like we need a copywriter seemed like you'd be good at that so Mm. why don't you come and join us so i did that and They said, but don't think of yourself as a copywriter. You can have any position in the company you want. So we are always looking for partners and we settle for employees. I Mm. thought, whoa, that's so cool. So I saw them make that offer to dozens of people and nobody was ever, like they couldn't see it through. Like some people would sort of move like they were doing it, but like when it got
0: hard, they wouldn't. And I went all the way in. And so at this point, the, the end goal is the money. Right. A thousand percent. So the money was going to fund what is kind of created now, which I, I did not unfortunately
1: have this vision. Okay. I just wanted to make movies. Okay. So it. it was I wanted to make any cool story, whatever. I didn't have a big why. And so all I thought about every day was getting rich, getting rich, getting rich. That was it. I want to get rich. I told my wife and make you rich. Like that was yeah. I was literally focused on dollars and cents. I can't tell you how many times I would take a calculator out while waiting for a movie to start and Mm -hmm. be like, all right, if I became partner and I got this percentage and we sold for this much, you know, like how much money would we have? And my wife and I used to do that over and over and over.
0: I'm curious, was it difficult to frame your mindset to allow yourself to say, I want to get rich coming from like a lower middle-class household? Definitely not. Growing up in the eighties, man, and, and this is something where I
1: really disconnect with people now who are like, the accumulation of wealth is evil and also yeah. it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like it is a powerful resource, mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. just a resource. Like yeah. you can do dumb shit with it. You can do things that are bad. You can do things that are ugly, but you can also do things that are insanely beautiful. Right. And when you, the fascinating thing to me about um, like charity is, People really get excited about the charity, but what they don't realize is they're just spending dollars that were made in something that they mm-hmm. say they hate. Right. So it's like, well, it's not the generation of the money, it's what's being done with the money that people mm-hmm. have beef with. Fair enough, and I think that really, that's we're moving into a new era where it matters what you do with your money.
0: Yeah, there's almost, and, there's almost like this culture of like wealth shaming where it's like, oh, you drive a nice car, must mean that you're a dick. Yes. You know, it's like and, and that, cool, <laughs> that will hold
1: people back. Like They're going to struggle financially yeah, because okay. they have this weird fucking story about money. Mm-hmm. And so that actually worries me, not for myself, because if you can deliver value, you can always make money. Mm-hmm. But I worry for people who have an ugly story about money, so they're never going to pursue getting out of that terrifying place of right. living paycheck to paycheck, never being able to amass enough money. Just be comfortable. I'm not saying people have to want to be a millionaire. Mm-hmm. But good Lord, like having six months cash on hand, like trying to work up in your company or taking, you know, less upfront pay so that you can get equity. Like there's so many things that you can do, but you have to have a story about money's beautiful. Money is this thing that facilitates and I have a beautiful dream and I need the money to facilitate that. So impact theory being certainly in my life, the example, right? I want to pull people out of the matrix by giving them an empowering mindset the only reason I'm able to do this is because I generated so much wealth. Mm-hmm. So it's like, ah, like, and we've now touched so many people's lives. I'm talking people like grabbing me, crying, like I was going through a divorce. You're the only thing that got me through. There was this one guy grabbed me, yoked. The kind of guy you would just think good looking dude, young, ripped. And he pulls me aside and he's like trying to be real quiet and he just starts crying and he's like I want to commit suicide, dude, and I don't know the way out of it. So it's like the fact that the content is like helping him and helping him process and you just think, fuck, Like this is, this is why money is so powerful because it allows you, if you have a beautiful dream, it allows you to build something beautiful. So I forget where I was originally going with that answer, but <laughs> no, you answered money it. can you be amazing. Oh yeah. yeah, so growing up as an 80s kid, like everybody was like, I wanna get rich. Like yeah. it was just,
0: my generation, everybody was saying yeah. that. So funny, because the opposite story for me. I, I grew up super religious, so for me it was always like, money's the root of all evil, money's the root mm. of all evil. And then you know the pursuit of money will always end up in misery and loneliness, and you know like you're not going to be happy. You're only going to be happy in this certain path. And so it took a lot of reframing and you know audio and books and podcasts and everything under the sun to really like. I remember um, I was listening to I think I think it was I think it was Grant Cardone podcast, and he and he said something about he was talking about getting rich. And he was like, if you're listening to, listen to this right now, if you're driving your car, wherever you are, say say out loud, I want to get rich. Say it out loud right now. And I was in my car by myself, still felt silly. And I felt this like inner hesitation of like, why, why can't I say this? This is super, super weird. And it was, I, I immediately from that point forward, was just like, I need to attack this or I will never attract money mm. into my life because I'm, I'm not allowing myself to have that ability to attract that. Something that Ed Milet talks about is the inner thermostat, right? So you're only going to be able to rise to the temperature that you believe you're capable of. So the only way to like fix that is you have to do the work to make sure that your inner temperature, your inner thermostat is raising you to a certain level so that you can attract that kind of success mm-hmm. into your life. And that was a huge, huge thing for me. So it's just kind of interesting hearing like the, the juxtaposition um, from from the different uh, different perspectives there. Um, so let's fast forward a little bit. You are, um, you, you guys do really well at the software company, but basically you come to a point where you're like, hey, the money's great, this is awesome, but now I feel like I really wanna do something that I'm actually passionate about. Something that actually really helps people that I really believe in. So can you talk a little bit about um, how you were willing to like give up your equity, go back, start something from scratch, and then how they were like, hey, let's just do something together, and then how Quest came about.
1: Yeah, so awareness was a little more heartbreaking than that. So it was a really difficult period in my life where I'd been chasing money. And the irony is when you said, you know, that if you chase money, you're always going to be happy. I think that actually is true. The only way that I think you can pursue money and still come out the other side feeling fulfilled is if you are pursuing the money by doing something that intrinsically, in and of itself, even if the money never came, fulfills you. Hmm. And that is one of those, like, what would you go back and tell your, your younger self? That, hmm. that at the end of the day, the struggle is guaranteed, the success is not. So pursue something that in and of itself brings you joy, brings you fulfillment, it's hard as hell, you have to earn something every day, like all the things that go into making a person fulfilled, do that because the money may never come. And even if it does, it's not going to change how you feel about yourself. So if you think you're a schmuck, you're still going to feel like a schmuck with all the money in the world. Mm. And so it just becomes like a drug where it's like, it's actually not making your life better. Yeah. So it might make your Instagram account look rad. <laughs> but like, I mean, think about how many recently, how many ultra wealthy people committed suicides. Right. Bananas. Right. And I, I've had a very fascinating experience, which is that I went from, I mean, right before the... Um, we took the investment from quest and I truly got wealthy. Mm -hmm. Um, we were making good money. Don't get me wrong. It was an above average, um, salary, but I certainly wasn't 1%. Mm -hmm. Um, and then it was literally refresh, 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 refresh on my bank account. And one morning, just like that, boom, lots of commas and zeros.
0: What was that? How was that feeling? Like I, cause I've, I've, I have a sales background. So like you know, I've I've had bigger paychecks than other paychecks. Mm-hmm. And I know when a, a paycheck's about to come in and it comes in, I'm like, oh, yeah. But obviously nothing even close to what that experience was. What was that now Here's the thing. Like?
1: It probably is exactly like what this experience is. I mean, there's a little bit of surrealness to it. I, I don't want to um, downplay, downplay it. Downplay, yeah. But le- so I'll back up a little bit. So because that moment is colored largely by how I got rich. Mm. So... At awareness, I'm chasing money. It's all about getting rich. I'm completely miserable. I burn out. I am, um, you know, making more money than I've ever made in my life. On paper, I'm a multimillionaire. Mm. Take that for what it's worth. (laughs) And then I realize I'm emotionally bankrupt and I can't keep doing this. So Mm. I go in and I quit and it was deeply shameful. And now, like, when people hear the story, it sounds cool because it ends off playing out so well. Mm -hmm. But in the moment, I was ashamed because I was quitting when I said I would never quit. And so I gave the equity back and I said, look, I'm not going to cross the finish line. I don't think I should get anything for this. Here's your equity back. And they say, you know, look, we could do this without you, but we don't want to. And so what would it look like for us to keep working together? And so we lay out, making a very long story quite short, we lay out what it would need to look like. It would need to be based on value creation, passion, something that I could just love doing every day where we were being ourselves instead of just trying to be slick marketers. And so we make this whole list. And for three very different reasons, the company that we decide we want to start is Quest Nutrition. At the time, we did not know that it was gonna be big. We certainly thought it could be. And we, mm-hmm. and we were talking about building a you know, multi-billion dollar company. We wanted to be one of the biggest food companies in the world. But it's like, how much of that is just to have a big goal that we're aiming for? Because in the beginning, it's like, we didn't even know like if people were gonna go for our first product or not. But we're savvy enough business guys. Like, I don't want this to sound Pollyanna, it was, we were deadly focused on adding value to people's lives. That was the big shift. But we also knew to be strategic and to build something that, you know, has margin. And it's Mm -hmm. like in the food industry, that's amazing. People eat your product. And so it gives you multiple times to touch them and be good for them and empower Mm -hmm. them and all this stuff. So, but all of that was such a huge shift in the way that I thought about business. I led with value instead of profitability. I led with authenticity, though nobody was calling it that back then. You know, just like really being a good person. Right. And everything that we did was about being a good person, adding value to people's lives, whether anybody was looking or not. And it was just like building community and all this stuff. It just ended up being amazing. And the timing was right. So now with all of that, and I'm feeling full, and I'm feeling like I'm helping people. And it just like, every day I was showing up fighting for my mom and my sister, who were both morbidly obese and had been struggling with weight their whole lives. And my sister now has lost 125 pounds. Like, it was just wow. this amazing time in my life yeah. where all this wealth was coming as a result of being willing to break myself and have to help people. Hmm. And I just thought, what a cool world we live in, with hmm. social media, where being a good person is the best marketing vehicle on the planet. And it was just, it was amazing. And so when the money hit, I had already changed who I was as a person. I was no longer unhappy. I knew what fulfillment looked like. I knew what it took. I knew the hard work that it took to become fulfilled. I knew that I had to show up every day fighting for myself definitely, but also fighting for other people to build a set of skills that were insanely difficult to acquire that allowed me to serve these people. Like all of that, like. When the money hit, it was like, yeah, I fucking did the work, man. Mm, I did the work on myself. I did the work to do the right thing. I'm here trying to add value to people's lives. I've made a thousand hard decisions in order to serve and not just take. And it's like, so when the money hit, it was two things. The utterly fascinating thought that the money didn't change at all how I felt about myself. Mm. Not one bit. I'd worked so hard to build an identity that I felt good about, a person that I was proud of. And I remember when the money hit it was a lot of money. And my wife's like, what are we going to do today? And I was like, go to fucking work. (laughs) Like, what do you mean? Like, it's not about the money. I've said that so many times. It's not about the money. I'm not doing this for the money. And I said, that's not rhetoric. I'm not doing it for the money. Mm -hmm. The money's going to be awesome. And I can already begin to visualize what we're going to do with it. But that's not why I'm here. And I want to go back and I want to show everyone on the team that my work ethic will never change. What I'm about will never change. My mission is there. And so, they would never know what day the money hit. I didn't talk about it. I was just back to work. It was a normal day. Yeah. So realizing that the money didn't hit, that was sort of fascinating thing, number one. And then number two is like, there is a certain amount of money where you're like, I can do shit now. <laughs> like yeah. shit your average person can't do. Right. right. You know, it's crazy. Like when you start shopping for this kind of house right. and your whole life you've been in like apartments or we'd finally worked our way up to a modest house. It's like, you're shopping in Beverly Hills. Right. It's, it's actually a mansion. And I can afford it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're like, right. I can afford that two, three times. You know yeah. what I mean? And you're like, whoa, this is crazy. And I'm just going to pay all cash. Like this is nuts. <laughs> and so there is like kind of this weird, like, this is cool, man. Yeah. But it doesn't affect how you feel about yourself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's the biggest thing is that money is just irrelevant in the whole equation. Like, it's, in my opinion, like it's better to have money than to not have money, but it basically is just an amplifier of the person that you are. So if you're thinking that one day, that when you have the money, you're going to all of a sudden become this other person, like that's not gonna happen. But it does, like you said, allow you to now create something that you really wanted to create, something that actually really fulfills like your dreams and your vision that you had for your life. Okay, so this one has been a long time coming, and I'm excited to announce the launch of my new company, World Class Media. I've been doing podcast coaching and consulting for individuals and businesses for the last couple of years, and over the last few months, I just haven't been able to keep up with the requests. So in order to serve more people, I've decided to stop taking on coaching clients and start an agency that creates a done-for-you podcasting solution, as well as monthly production and repurposing services. So if you are a business owner, coach, consultant, entrepreneur, real estate investor, whatever whatever it may be, then a podcast should be the most powerful business development tool in your arsenal. Imagine having something that is constantly engaging your ideal client, even when you're sleeping, or that allows you to connect with the top people in your industry to build your network and establish credibility, or that allows you to help listeners that are currently outside of your sphere of influence, or that helps you get book deals or speak on more stages or create content once that we can repurpose and distribute across all the platforms for you. That is the power of a world-class podcast that's done the right way. So if you're interested in starting a show, but you just don't have the time, the resources, or desire to figure out all the tech stuff, the hosting, the equipment, the platforms, the production, then you just focus on what you do best, which is serving your clients and running your business. And then let my team focus on what we do best, which is creating world-class chart-topping podcasts. Let's at least hop on a call and chat about it because I'm fairly picky with the people that I work with and I only work with people who I genuinely think are going to be able to absolutely crush it with a new show so head over to travischapelcom slash make my podcast that's travischapel.com slash make my podcast and we'll chat real soon so now coming out of out of quest billion dollar company number two on the Inc. 500 yeah. list yeah so all these all, <laughs> all of these things coming together right then you decide to go into impact theory so I know you talk a lot about your goals for, uh, for Impact Theory in terms of becoming, beating Disney at their own game and stuff like that. Can you kind of unfold a little bit of what that means? Like 10-year plan and then like 100-year plan, I assume you have something like that.
1: Yeah, so the goal is to, like I said, pull people out of the matrix by giving them an empowering mindset. And so I want people... Um, to realize that the most fundamental thing they have to change is their perspective, the way in which they see the world. Now, most people don't realize that their perspective is a choice. It's been made up since they were a little kid. It was basically handed to them by their surroundings, their parents, their friends, the culture. And so they don't realize that they've built this frame of reference. And Mm -hmm. a big part of the reason that somebody in the inner cities and somebody who's middle class or somebody who grew up wealthy they're so different is they just have different frames of reference and you very much could have interchanged them at a genetic level and had one person grow up in the other place and the other grow up in the other place and they would have all succumbed in the same way Mm -hmm. and so I just spent enough time working in the inner cities to see that over and over and over and over and I saw extraordinary people, people that were smarter than me, people that had like crazy discipline or a willingness to um, deal with risk. And I was just like blown away. And I'm like, but they're not doing anything with their lives because their perspective tells them that they can't. And I remember the first time one of them told me, Tom, the world has told me they don't want people like me. And I was like, what? <laughs> like I, from a, you know, the background that I had, like you heard things like that in movies, but I didn't actually think people believed it. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I realized, no, like they actually believe it. And why did they believe it? Because their parents actually told them mm-hmm. the world doesn't want people like you. Yeah. So crippling. So it's like, whoa, like you can't say that. Like even it's one of those. And this is partly where I came up with the idea that I'm not as concerned with what's true as I am with what's empowering. Hmm. And even if the world is working against you, focusing on that does not help you. Right. Focusing on the fact that you're strong enough to overcome even the craziest obstacles, okay, that does help you. Mm-hmm. But those two different perspectives, the world is out to get me and I can handle anything the world throws at me, dude, the outcomes of those over a long enough time frame are, are terrifying yeah. and it, it impacts generationally. And so the way I used to talk about impact theory before it was impact theory was I wanna end generational poverty. Because generational poverty to me is not about money. It's about mindset. Yeah. So I wanted to make sure that anybody, no matter where they grew up, they could not hope but encounter an empowering mindset. Now, my thing is what I do at Impact Theory, what we're doing right now is essentially you talk direct to camera. You say exactly what you need to do, how you should think. And I'll say between 2 and 5% of the world, they're impacted by that and they make the real change. Now, it's still pretty rad when you talk about the fact that there's you know over 7 billion people on the mm-hmm. planet. Yeah. But that leaves... 95 to 98% of the people who are not impacted. Right. So my thing is, how do you impact people at scale? Mm. And the answer to that is exactly why this is called impact theory, which is I believe that the only way humans assimilate truly disruptive information is through narrative. Whether it's the narrative they tell themselves, whether it's the narrative they're told about the world, yeah. um, we interact with things and our brains are wired for narrative. Mm-hmm. So. If we know that your zip code impacts how you grow up, your parents impact how you grow up, and your friends impact how you grow up based on what the culture is, what's cool, what's popular, I can't impact where you grow up, I can't impact who your parents are, but I can impact the things your friends think about based on what's going on in the cultural subconscious. Mm. But the only way I can do that is through story. So that, and you combine it with, like, what am I good at, what am I drawn to, what am I deeply passionate about? Storytelling, anyway. So it just all came together when I really thought about what might work at scale, what do I want to be doing with my life, it it came down to telling real stories. And so a lot of people are surprised that the way that we see ourselves here at Impact Theory is not the way that the outside world sees us. Mm. So the outside world sees us as being um, social content and that's it. We see ourselves as Twofold. We do the social, what we call nonfiction content, mm-hmm. but we do fiction content. So we just released our first comic book,
0: nice.
1: um, which we hope to translate into film or TV, and we hope to do that over and over and over until we're, you know, playing at Disney level. So the ten-year plan is going to be to get things into production, have multiple projects that end up on screens with big budgets that people love, and it, you know, starts to become part of the the dialogue. Yeah. Um, I've always thought in, in seventy years, I guess, more than a hundred. I don't okay. know why. Yeah. It just it seems more plausible. Um, even though I'm fully aware things will change so much, I can't possibly predict out that of course, far. Yeah. Uh, but it just gives yeah. you something to. Uh, yeah, at. I mean, Disney. That's not a ten-year thing. You yeah. can't, can't build no, Disney it, in ten years. You know. No way. Yeah. And so it just gets me thinking really long-term. Right. Um, so consistency of brand, making sure that we're only telling one kind of story, but telling it from a thousand different angles, making mm. sure that. Um, It's entertaining first, that it never feels preachy, that, yeah. you know, a kid would want to watch it, that parents want to watch it, that we serve both adults and kids. Yeah. So it's like all these things, and the reason that I want to serve both adults and kids is first, kids start by worshiping their parents. So I want to make sure their parents think we're cool so that their parents are happy to show their kids mm-hmm. the impact theory stuff, yeah. and then the kids have their own version of it that they can interact with, and then hopefully the kids will then grow up And introduce their kids and that's i've always thought about it as a generational thing i think once that generation that grew up on impact theory
0: has kids Mm. that's when we'll really start to see impact yeah yeah i love that man i love the mission too and i love the implementation of that because the bottom line is like this content is super helpful but like you're saying what's some kid in the inner city are they really going to tune in and start you know digesting all of this um, entrepreneurial, motivational type content, probably not. They're focused on video games and comic books and movies and all those different things. So it's so cool that you're um, thinking that far in ahead to really start making a real impact on how culture tells the story. Um, so I want to commend you for that. There are very few people that I know of that know how to articulate um, issues, problems, mindsets, um, different things that are, are really difficult to break down as well as you do. Um, do, you, do you feel like that's something that you've really worked on or do you think it's just something that, is, that comes naturally to you? Is it from reading, personal development? So, one, I think
1: that we all have an area where we get early wins. Mm -hmm. So, I always got early wins with verbal things. Okay. So, when I put a unit of energy into something verbal and the person next to me put that same unit of energy, I would get maybe 1.2 or 1.3 the return. And so, I just found myself, whoa, like I'm pulling ahead. And that was very useful and I'm very grateful for that. But the number of hours that I've put into getting good are... Extraordinary. Mm. And so I always, it pisses me off. Like if people just think that I'm naturally talented yeah. and they don't think about the number of hours that I spent at 14 holding a hairbrush and standing in front of the mirror practicing my stand up comedy routines yeah. or then doing stand up comedy all through high school, literally five days a week at my lunch table, I would hold an impromptu comedy routine for, you know, whatever, 55 minutes for the lunch period and i would do that every day for 4 years. So you can imagine like even just adding up those hours right. like the ridiculous number of hours that is and then i was in speech and debate mm-hmm. and did every speaking competition that you can do and like so i i really poured myself into it for multiple decades. So yeah. at this point i've got to have close to 30,000 hours of
0: either speaking or practicing speaking. Yeah, so on that same vein kind of preparing for this um I, I listen to a lot i listen to a lot of your stuff in general um just to improve my own abilities and all this kind of stuff um, you jordan harbinger a couple others are just like the go-to for me um, and, I, and i coach people too on podcasting and interviewing and stuff like that and i always tell them just binge listen tom bilyeu binge listen jordan harbinger and get back to me a little bit. jordan is yeah. the man i love <laughs> yeah. that guy yeah he's actually the one who made this happen so thank you jordan for the intro um, so here's a couple of of uh, of quotes um that are your quotes that I that I pulled from a few a few of your previous um interviews talks episodes um so I've never done this before but I want I want to try it out if that's cool with you I'm going to say a quote that you have said and I want you just to give me like a quick deep dive into that quote sure cool so first one there is no greater revenge than unmitigated success <laughs> so that's actually a quote I think that's um Frank
1: Sinatra if I remember right and one, I think that people really have to understand that you're only going to get so far with beauty. You're only going to get so far with love and I'll call it 80%. You're going to get 80% of the way there. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of the time, that's where you should be. But there's something built into us where you need the dark side. You need the, the rage, the anger to propel you forward in acute moments. I don't think you ever wanna stay there for long. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they've shown this scientifically. If you take somebody and have them submerge their arm in an ice bucket and have you know 30 people do it, whatever, you'll get a median amount of time that people can leave it in. If right when they're about to pull it out, you tell them, don't take it out, get angry. You can yell, cuss, do anything you want. Just express rage. They can leave it in 30% longer. Wow. So our ability to endure pain is increased by the amount that we're able to harness the anger, the aggression. And I find that people either don't know how to be aggressive, they don't know how to channel that rage, that anger, or it's all they do. Hmm. Both are problematic. If your only tool is rage and anger, you'll self-destruct, you'll burn out, you'll alienate everybody. If, on the other hand, you hold it, you reserve it for those key moments. You endure what you can endure, but right before you give in, instead of giving in, you go farther than anybody else because you know how to harness that stuff. So there are definitely times that I think about where I'm, I'm just fucking exhausted, man, to my core, like mm-hmm. to the, the marrow of my bones, I cannot go any farther. Yeah. And in those moments, I think of the people that I know want me to fail. I think of the people that sincerely believe I'm going to fail and that they will do anything they can to trip me up. I think of people that told me, You're never, dude, it's too late. You're never going to make it. Mm. I actually have a list. And <laughs> I know who the people are. I'm thinking of them right now. And in those moments, I just, I won't give them the satisfaction. And I mm. am going to be successful and then not say a fucking word about it. And just let the success speak for itself. But I've gotta tell you, there have been times, part of the reason that I've been as successful as I have is in those moments where I'm just as tired as anybody else, where I wanna to go to the party like everybody else, mm-hmm. I don't because of the darkness, not because I'm thinking, oh my God, I really wanna help people. Right. That's where I spend 80% of my time. Mm-hmm. But homie, there is 20% of the time, it's nothing but rage.
0: Love it, love it. All right, next one. Um, you talk a lot about doing all the hard things and stuff like that, so um, actually, I'm gonna, I'm gonna save that one for a second. I like this one. It is impossible to see the world as it is. We kind of touched on this a little bit talking about perspective, but can mm. you kind of go into that a little bit further?
1: Yeah, you really can. So there are regions of your brain that are designed to color your perception of the event. So there's a part of your brain called the deep limbic system. Its job to apply emotion. So, hey, there was a stimulus. Was the stimulus good or bad? And there's a famous Shakespeare quote, there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. So, we all have this stimulus, which is completely neutral. Genocide is neutral, right? We say it's horrible, and rightly so. But <laughs> yeah. we have to understand that we're doing that with everything. We're doing that with, I stub my toe, and it has meaning. We do it with, um, I failed that test, and that has meaning. And because the meaning part is completely subjective, and we, like begin to lose sight of what's real. It completely fluctuates based on our mood, how much sleep we got, what we ate. Like All of these things are going to influence how you feel about an otherwise neutral stimulus. Hmm. And um, lest people think that I'm overstating that genocide is in and of itself neutral, Viktor Frankl, who was in, I think, five concentration camps and managed to survive, said between stimulus and response, is a gap. And in that gap, we decide how to react. Hmm. And he said, people in concentration camps, you could tell within 72 hours who was going to live and who was going to die. Because once somebody gave up and they no longer had meaning, Hmm. he said 72 hours later, they were going to be dead. Because in that gap, if you're not doing something useful, if you're not empowering yourself believing something regardless of whether or not it's actually true or accurate mm. just i choose to believe like if i remember right, he was like he just kept thinking about his family i'm doing this for my family i'm going to get out and do something wonderful for my family and fighting for my family i'm going to make through this for my family and that thing filled him with what he needed to fight through five concentration camps and make it out the other side and the, the, the book man's search for meaning is is extraordinary and I think really has to be read. And so when you understand that even in that situation, somebody's saying, no, 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 you still have the ability to choose how you respond. Hmm. Meaning you can change that frame of reference. That's when I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop worrying about what is accurate and I'm
0: just going to worry about what's empowering. Oh, that's so, so fantastic. Last one, here we go. There's always room for the best.
1: Yeah, I live by this. And I think that People need to understand you are where you are in your life right now because of your skill set. So if you're not where you want to be, you don't have the skill set you need. You're just not good enough. Mm. And a lot of people can't handle that because they think it means you're just not good enough, period, forever. You you will never be good enough. You are less than. That's not what it means. It means that your skill set is less than. You're not good enough yet. You can apply yourself. You said it earlier, humans are the ultimate adaptation machine. It is what we are literally genetically designed to do is adapt. Mm. That's why the human animal is the ultimate apex predator. We just adapt, man. We can adapt mentally. We can adapt physically. It is crazy the level to which we can adapt our bodies and our minds. And if you think that, oh, I'm this ultimate adaptation machine, but who I am now is who all I will ever be, it's like you're missing out on, on the precise thing that makes humans extraordinary. Mm. So I always tell people, look, just assume you're average. Assume you were born hopelessly average. You can improve. And even if you want to think that you're like way below average, fine, you, you are where you are, but you can still improve. Right. So wherever you are, there is a, a massive amount of improvement that can be done. And when you hear stuff like Richard Branson has like a 92 IQ or something, it's like literally just above um, like special needs. Really? And he's like, well, it hasn't held me back because he he built a frame of reference that became very powerful. And so that's what I want people to focus on. Don't worry about who you are today. Who do you want to become and what price are you willing to pay to get there? Because it will demand an extraordinary
0: price. Yeah, I love that. That's one of the quotes that I have um, when, I, when I first started the show. That's one of the quotes I wrote down on a whiteboard. So everybody's like, well, podcasting, it's super crowded, it's super crowded, super mm. crowded. You're not going to be able to stand out. And I wrote that Steve Martin quote, be so good, they can't ignore you. Yes. That, that, that was what I focused on. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. There's saturation. If you're good, it doesn't matter. Um, so, uh, Tom, I, I honestly could talk to you for so much longer because there's, like I said, we talk health, business, Um, influence like all all these other um, uh, subsects and topics and all these things. So um, real quick, since this is a Build Your Network podcast, I would be doing a disservice to my audience if I did not ask you this question. It's the question I ask every single guest that comes on the show. Do you believe that who you know or what you know is more important and why?
1: Ultimately, it's gonna be what you know for sure. But I think to discredit who you know would be a mistake. So this is one where you're really gonna have to do both. You need to be extraordinary because the easiest way to get to know people is to leave them in awe. Hmm. And I cannot tell you, like we set up impact theory to be a honeypot. So I get people on the show that it would be useful to me to impress. And then I put them in a situation where I'm most likely to impress them. Mm -hmm. So first of all, they come into the house, that's number one. Control on the frame. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Number two, the team treats them like rock stars from the moment they walk in. Mm-hmm. So they're already feeling really good about it. Three, I'm going to do so much research. I'm going to know all about them, which they feel very honored by. I write mm-hmm. an intro that really shows what I think about them and how yeah. I feel about My them. My favorite part of your show is the Thanks, intro. Man. Yeah. And then through the interview, I show that I'm not hyping you. Like, this is real. Like, I've really gotten something from you, and I want to share that. And so I set them up to shine as much as possible. I try to get out of the way. I try to let them do their thing. And then my outros are showing that I was listening the whole time, that um, there's something about them that I have been really touched by, and I can articulate it. Mm -hmm. And and saying that in front of them so they know I'm sincere, that I'm willing to say it in front of my audience, um, really brings home for them that none of this was bullshit. That this was legit, like from first to last, we're super careful about who we bring on the show for that reason, because I never want to hype somebody and it be empty or BS, and from that, because I've worked so hard on that skill set, I'm able to impress them with what I know, and then they become someone that I know. Mm. And so I've built a lot of friendships off of that, and also, when people see it and they're like, whoa, this is great. This has added a lot of value to my life. Now they feel some kind of way about me. And so mm-hmm. when I meet them, they're like, whoa, man, you added this value to my life. There's like this warmth that they feel. And so that's allowed me to make connections because I'm actually quite introverted, mm-hmm. um, which is weird because I, I, when I was younger, I was much more outgoing. Um, as I became more self-aware, yeah. I became way more introverted. <laughs> and um, so I, I really don't like the cold open. Mm-hmm. So having that out there where at a party there might be a couple people that have seen the show, and so it's like this rad way for me to overcome this, like, otherwise sort of reclusive tendency. Um, So that's been super powerful. But it really is born of I've worked my ass off to develop a skill set. That skill set leaves people in awe, and then from that, I'm able to build relationships where people are like, yo, this guy's good. He's got work ethic. He's crazy. Like, look what he's done. You know what I mean? So that really is important. But now you're in the door. Now you've got to be a legitimate, like somebody who adds value. You don't have to be real close, like vulnerable friends with everybody, Mm -hmm, but you've got to be adding value. It's got to be a reciprocal relationship. There's really got to be something there. It can't just be, I mean, it can be transactional, but I think you'll find you get the least out of transactional relationships. You get the most when there's really something there. Emotionally, there's a connection and understanding and investment. Like those go the farthest.
0: Yeah, so if you're average of the five people spend most time with, what would be your best advice for somebody listening right now to level up their network and associations so that they can change their environment and become the person that they need to be books and podcasts
1: hmm. like there, there isn't a time in my life where the five people that I'm spending the most time with at least two of them aren't people in books or podcasts. So, um, I think that's a really big deal and we're living in this extraordinary time where you've got people like you, me, and a whole host of other people pouring their guts out for free with everything they've ever learned, like really giving it away. I'm not holding anything back. I'm trying to give people everything they need to get the fuck out of the matrix. Why do I do that? Because I want them to feel some kind of way about me. There are going to be things that I'm going to sell. Make no doubt about it. I'm going to ask people to go stand outside Netflix and say you got to take on this next Impact Theory movie. Like there are going to be asks that I'm going to have in mm. no uncertain terms. But if, if they know that I've really broken myself and have to add value, right. some percentage of them will do it. It won't be everybody, but it'll be some percentage and it will be insanely powerful. So knowing that you can interact with them i mean it's like it's fucking one-on-one right. like the camera yeah. that's honest right i mean th- these are close it's intimate shit like they mm. they are getting the same experience that you're getting i mean mm. there's a little something extra to mm. presence right. where you like really feel that but hey vr is coming that's crazy yeah but th- it's a big deal and y- now you can watch enough of some one person's content where you know how they think And so you can begin to adopt that and say, Hey, I'm going to try thinking like Tom for a minute. I'm going to try thinking like Jordan for a minute Mm -hmm. and see like what fits, what feels good. Start there. And then that becomes that base and then interact with people in that community. Right? So if you go on right now in my Instagram comments and start hitting people up, you obviously both like Tom Bilyeu content. Mm -hmm. So it's like, Hey, Watch who comments in what way. Like, who do you resonate with? DM them. Reach out and say, look, man, I'm, I really vibe with this dude. I really vibe with this card. Whatever. You seem rad. I'm in L.A. Where are you at? Like, you can build online relationships and then, you know, if you want to take it offline. And we've had people do that, build their own communities off of us. The guy that does Tom Billue Classics, mm-hmm. which is all the old interviews that I did, mm-hmm. um, he's not involved with us in any way, shape, or form. Yep. But he has created, he's got like... I don't know, like 50,000 followers or something. Wow. So, I mean, there are ways to, to do this kind of stuff where you can build your own tribe of like-minded people to get those people in your life so they don't need to be in your family, they don't need to be at your school. Like, it's just too easy now to
0: connect with people. Tom, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Sadly, very sadly, we're running out of time. Let me move into the last segment here. This is, my, this is my random round, just really quick random questions and quick random answers. You ready? Yep. What profession, other than your own, do you think it would be fun to attempt?
1: Uh, I would like to be uh basically an interior designer. I want to build the whole house but also with a a real focus
0: on interior design. If you could sit on a park bench with somebody, past or present, mm. and chat with them for an hour, who would it be in life?
1: Oh man, I'm going to have to go with my grandfather. He died when my dad was 6 months old. Oh uh, wow. So like it would just be fascinating to see like are there similarities um That's a bit of a lame answer for your audience, though, so I'll give you (laughs) another one, which is, um, I'd really like to sit with Elon Musk. Hmm. Like, that dude really, really, really inspires me, and I'm obsessed with the idea of colonizing Mars. Um, Even before he started talking about it, it's just like, I used to tell people I would be in um, astronomy... Never physics, because I... I uh, you want to talk about something that is the opposite of I get early wins? I'm not saying I can't do it, yeah. but I'm saying it would not be yeah. easy. Uh, but I'm, I'm just so fascinated by space travel. It's not an accident that um, so far the stories that we've been telling on the fiction side have been science fiction. I'm just way, way into that. So not only does he inspire me as an entrepreneur, but the whole sci-fi thing.
0: How do you like to consume content? Books, audiobooks, blogs, podcasts, as videos? As fast as
1: possible. As so as possible. I, it, the...
0: My preference
1: is video, for sure. Okay. Um, and this is my plea. YouTube, if you're listening, don't make people pay for premium to be able to turn it off and treat it like a podcast. Because podcast search capability is so ridiculous, I'm offended by it. Um, so that, I just like to see the person. I think yeah. that, you know, seeing people's reactions and stuff, you can get a lot more of the conversation. So um, that's always my preference. But I, I will not watch something I can't speed up. Unless it's fiction. So if it's a podcast or a YouTube video and I'm somewhere where I can't speed it up, this is maybe even dumb. I just won't watch it. It's so frustrating for me at normal speed. Can't do it. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. My morning routine is as strict as I can make it. So once I realize that I'm awake, if I've had more than five hours sleep, I give myself 10 minutes or less to get out of bed, non-negotiable, because I'm atrocious at it, and I want to stay in bed for hours and hours and hours. (laughs) Uh, I wish that wasn't true. And so I have 10 minutes or less, my gym clothes are next to the bed, I put them on immediately, I go straight to the gym, I work out 45 minutes to an hour. Immediately after working out, I meditate, I try to do it after working out so that I can practice calming my heart rate and slowing my breathing which is an anxiety thing for me, so I try to practice getting into that parasympathetic nervous system out of the sympathetic as fast as humanly possible. After I do that, if I have time, and I do unfortunately often cut this, if I have time, I do what I call thinkitating. So once I get into an alpha wave state from meditating, where you're feeling calm and creative, I try to set the intention beforehand that this is a big problem that I'm facing and I want to solve it. And when you're feeling calm and creative like that, you often get what feel like very fresh, unique ideas you otherwise couldn't think your way to. Mm. Um, so I'll just keep a computer next to me and I'll, you know, take notes on things that I'm thinking of. Um, once I finish that, then I read. And depending on what time I woke up will determine how long I read. And when I say read, I always mean listen um, and or because I do every all my books are on um Audible. Okay. And the only time that I'll physically read a book is if it's fiction, um, or I'm preparing for a guest that hasn't recorded an audible version damn them all Um, because I can just take the information in so much faster auditorily so um, I'd like to be able to read for like an hour or more in the mornings but it's pretty rare that I have enough time and then I immediately go into what I call important things so I keep a list of the most important things that I could be working on at that time so I don't have to think about it I can just go straight into it oh god I actually lied to you this used to not be interesting so I always skipped over it but now I'm taking cold showers so after I've done thinkitating then I now I'm taking cold shower. I hate them more than you can imagine. They're so fucking powerful. Yeah. Dude, there's something about you're you're stepping into you could take a warm shower. Right. <laughs> and your brain is like, yo, this yeah. could be a warm shower. This could feel really awesome. And your dumb ass is about to turn on the cold water. Yeah. <laughs> and so I've got yeah, the thing no. cranked. And my whole thing is I set a timer because so I like to know how long a minute. I set a timer as soon as I hit go, it's already cold shower time. So there's no fucking hesitating. I hit the time, boom, I'm in. I don't allow myself to hesitate even for a half second. Ah, it's cold. Boom. It hits. I have two shower heads. So I'm getting hit from both sides. So there's nowhere to fucking hide. So I'm like in this cold water and I'm like every day, every day with the cold water. And, and what I try to remind myself is, Hey, you can make this miserable if you want. Or you can switch your mindset right now. You can fucking dance. You can ask yourself what Goggins would do. You can Wim Hof breathe. You can remind yourself that you're a badass. And then even though you don't want to take a cold shower, you take a cold shower. Why? Because it's hard. Because you said you were going to do it and you do the things you say you're gonna do. And I earn so much credibility with myself yeah. just for taking a cold shower. Like the way that I feel right now, knowing I've taken nothing but cold showers for the last I counted today, today was 26. For the last 26 showers, they have all been cold. Yeah. And to know how I feel about myself, because that is true, mm-hmm. is rad. It's something that I wish for everybody. And it is, it is that simple. Everything else in your life could be failing, everything. But if you can face taking a cold shower every day, you know something about yourself. And that is that first win that you need to then start building and stacking. Okay, so then I get out of the cold shower, I warm the fuck up. (laughs) And I do whatever I can, layer on clothes, turn the heater on, and I immediately go into um, the most important things. And I just started doing this this week, so don't think I'm too clever, because how many years did I stupidly do it any other way? do not allow any notifications in your life none zero zip delete them all yes that means that if somebody texts you an hour ago that their house is burning it's gonna fucking burn just is what it is and if it's that important they will come to you you can't call me you can't text me you can't email me i'll never know unless i go into the app i'll never see it it's not on my lock screen i don't have the little badge icon that says you have 14 messages like i literally get North of 50 text messages every day. And I just, I was getting so frustrated because everyone thinks their question is fast. Like, you know, we started this almost an hour late, right? Like 45 minutes late. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you know why? No. Tom, Tom, just real quick. (laughs) Real quick always turns into 45 minutes, always. And it's like, you get these little, like just, I was getting pecked to death and so out of rage going back to the earlier thing where you finally get so fucking fed up you're like I'm I'm making this radical change I sent my wife a text and I said from now on if you need me you're gonna have to come knock on the door because I'm turning off every single alert alarm everything it's all dead it's all gone no more it liberates you in a way I can't tell you the the productivity there's a thing called switching cost there's a tremendous switching cost to go from hey can I just ask you something just real fast Thomas just real fast even if it actually is real fast and only took 45 seconds, it may now take me five minutes to get back in flow. Right. So yeah. that real yeah. fast becomes essentially six minutes. Mm-hmm. And then how many of those do you get? So if it takes me five minutes to get back in flow, and two minutes after I'm back in flow, somebody else has something that they need real quick. I feel my phone vibrate, it beeps, or it shows up on my, mm-hmm. you know, the badge icon. And so now I'm just looking at it. It's like, oh, I've got that text. Oh, there's two, there's three. Oh, they came in pretty fast. Like, I'm, it must be urgent. Let me right, check. Right. And so then you check and it's like, oh, it's just really fast. Okay, let me just answer it. It's crazy how little you get done. Yeah, it sucks you in.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's funny you bring up the cold shower thing. I, that's why t- since I read Aubrey Marcus's book, I've been, I've been uh, doing that myself. I tell people like if you want to save time in your morning routine, take a cold shower because yeah. I don't waste a I don't waste a second in the shower. Oh, anymore. they are short. As soon as I'm done cleaning myself, it's done and I'm out and I got the towel when I'm doing this. And yep. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally agree with that. Um, what is your go-to pump-up song?
1: Ooh, um, the first one that comes to mind, I think it's called Remember My Name. It's by Fort Minor. Okay. Um, so Fort Minor is Mike Shinoda from Lincoln Park has a side band where he raps. It's actually awesome. Um, that song is extraordinarily cool. Um, Most Anything by Jay-Z will get me there. Like, uh, The hard <laughs> flexes that that guy has are, are just sick. Um, Yeah, we'll leave it at at those two for now.
0: (laughs) And then what is something that you are just not very good at? Ooh, a lot, a lot, a
1: lot of things. Um, So in fact, the thing that was holding us here is um, that made us start late is I don't prize um, sticking to a schedule. I don't prize um, order. Hmm. I'm very comfortable in chaos. And I'm driven by one thing and that's results. Mm. And because I have such a high tolerance for chaos and such a low tolerance for people being sensitive, Mm. I create my own problems. Because not everybody is like that. It is very important to have people that their very instinct is to fight against chaos. Mm. And so what we were up against was, I am going to get the comic book where I want it. Fucking period end. And I'll do whatever the fuck I have to do. I will rewrite it a thousand times if I have to. Until I'm up to the point where if I don't press upload to get it to the printer, I'm going to miss a deadline. Because I won't miss the deadline with the the distribution company. That would be suicide. But up until that, I will do whatever I have to do. Mm -hmm. And that creates a lot of stress for people that don't have that same personality type. And so that's just bad management. So I need to get them on board. I need to help them create a system so they know this is what I'm going to be like. This is what I'm going to do. These are the problems that I'm going to create. And so it is, um, I'm a bad manager. That's the like, to really sum it up, I'm a fucking awesome leader. I'm a bad manager. And so that is something that I used to be okay with. And I think it's a mistake now. I need to become a good manager.
0: And as we get everything wrapped up here, what is one place online where we can find you the most?
1: At Tom Billu everywhere. So if you go to YouTube, um, Tom Bilyeu, that's like my, that's the holy grail for me. Um, that's where we put out the bulk of our content. Instagram is a place where you'll actually be able to communicate with me. Um, but on YouTube, for instance, on the day that we drop the episode, which is our main episode, Impact Theory, is on Tuesdays at 7 a.m. From 8 to 9 a.m., I'm in the comments for an hour. So that's another place that people can connect.
0: Perfect, perfect. So if you want to know more about Tom, listen to more Tom Tom's stuff, then head over to any of your social media. Type in at Tom Bilyeu, and that's B-I-L-Y-E-U. I promise you guys, I'm not just saying this, that he is one of my top three go-to listens whenever I'm in a funk or trying to, or or whenever I'm prepping for an interview and I want to know somebody who really dove deep with this person, I look up Tom's stuff. So 100%, if you have not been in his ecosystem, I highly recommend checking out everything that he does. It will 100% be worth your time. Tom, thanks so much for coming on the show today, man. Thanks for having me, dude. I appreciate it. Well, that's it for this episode of World Class. World Class is hosted by me, Travis Chapel, and produced by Eric Skorzynski. It is a World Class Media production. At World Class Media, we produce top-rated podcasts for seven to nine-figure entrepreneurs, executives, real estate investors, and content creators. So if you want your own show, you have the budget to create one, but you just don't have the time or the team to figure it out, then go to travischappell.com slash make my podcast. That's Travis Chappell, dot com slash make my podcast. And let's chat to see if we'd be a good fit to work together. Thanks so much for joining us. Until next time, peace out and stay world-class.